0: Christopher, are you wearing an Udi? Yes. Do you love it?
1: It's very warm.
2: Let's get it rolling. So Jason Langstorff, thank you so much for being here at the Full Stack Jamstack podcast. I've listened to so many podcast interviews with you. I think I could probably tell your whole life story. You originally were in a band and then... Got into this whole front end world through IBM of all places, did a bunch of crazy GraphQL stuff at IBM, eventually found your way to Gatsby. You were like the Gatsby dev advocate and we're at like peak Podcast when I was first learning to code. And now you work at Netlify, which is kind of the Mecca for developer experience right now. So really happy to have you.
0: Peak podcast. Thank you so much for having me. That was a very good breakdown. The only part there was a few years in the middle between the band and IBM, where I, I also ran a, an agency. And that was where I learned a lot of my front end stuff because I, I got thrown all the way into the the deep end of things.
2: I'd love to hear about that then, because I don't know if I've heard you talk about that on much of your other podcasts. So could you kind of dig into that? What was some of like the tech you were working with?
0: Like most developers who, uh, who are young and don't have a support system and don't have anyone to tell them they're making bad decisions. I decided I was going to build my own CMS. When I was in my band, that was kind of how I first got into web dev, and I had learned a little bit of JavaScript, PHP. I got into ActionScript. I was doing Flash because, you know, for bands at the time, the way to get music on the internet was Flash.
2: So this is before MySpace then?
0: It was right around the time that MySpace started picking up. We wanted our own website in addition to the MySpace, and then I got really into MySpace customization, and that was when I kind of got my feet wet with CSS. But then when I got into the agency, I realized that some of the stuff that I was doing for the band was completely infeasible for like client work, because with the band, I could just go and make the change or do anything like that. But that ongoing maintenance was not something I could do for multiple clients. I started looking into how could I let people update content. And like I said, no adult supervision. I bought a book on PHP and MySQL, and I built my own LAMP stack CMS that was horribly insecure and barely worked and didn't handle images and all of these bad, bad, bad decisions. And I rolled it out to a bunch of clients and eventually realized how bad of an idea that was when the maintenance calls started coming in. And I realized that I couldn't really charge somebody because I had built a bad thing. That was my first dose of reality as a developer where you can't just reinvent solutions because other people's solutions aren't exactly what you want. You have to be pragmatic and you have to recognize that it's not just the building of the thing. The building is exciting, but then there's the training and there's the maintaining and there's the documenting and there's the, you know, the growing and evolving. That part's not fun, especially if nobody but you uses your tool. At that point, I switched over to WordPress because I knew if I handed off a WordPress site to a client, not only were they able to actually do all the things that they needed to do, but also I could hand them off to another developer. I wasn't leaving them completely out to see if I said, sorry, I can't take this project because they'd be like, okay, I guess I'll take this custom pile of crap. You handed me over to another developer and say, please help. And then they'll charge me to build a brand new website. I felt less like a crook when I switched over to using open source software because I wasn't locking people into my solutions. I wasn't tying people to my whims. That was a tough set of lessons that I had to learn. But it all ended up being good in the long run. Like, I feel like it taught me a lot about how to build a CMS and how difficult that actually is. Like, I feel like that type of pragmatism is something that you can really only learn by getting so in over your head that you realize how much work went into these tools that we otherwise kind of snub our noses at and say, like, oh, yeah, but who would use WordPress? I'll tell you who uses WordPress. Like, everybody uses it because it is good. It is maybe not as polished or beautiful or modern as you want it to be, but it is a good tool that covers so many use cases and, and all of that stuff. So I think that's a hard one lesson through many late nights.
1: When I worked in an agency, they were very much a PHP agency, but they thought WordPress was a bit too big. So they went with an alternative called Perch. Have you ever heard of Perch?
0: I have heard of Perch. I don't know if I ever used it, but I do know the name.
2: It was created by Drew Drew McConnell. I was gonna say I have heard of this, but I've heard of this because you told me about
1: this. Yeah. Him and Rachel
0: Rachel Andrew.
1: Yeah, they made that. It's still really good, but they've just handed it off to another company now to carry on. But back in the day when you wanted a WordPress alternative, Grabber Purge was pretty good.
0: Yeah, and there's a ton of good alternatives out there. Like I think Concrete Five was one that a lot of people used and You know even like what was it called movable type is that what it was called
2: well movable type that was that a cms i always thought of that more as like a static site kind of generator tool but i have no idea what movable type was at all i've just heard people talk about it
0: yeah it was kind of like at the beginning when when there was wordpress and it hadn't taken over it was like movable type and wordpress and they were the two that were kind of poised or at least from where i was sitting in my little corner of the world
2: because Drupal is also in this conversation, right?
0: Drupal and Joomla and and all these, it's interesting when you look at the development landscape, because I remember when I was getting started and I thought of myself as like an indie dev, I was intimidated by Drupal because it felt too... I was like, well, I'm not a real company. <laughs> you
2: know I mean? Too enterprisey.
0: Like, I looked at Drupal and I was like, oh, that's for real companies and I'm not a real company. So I was looking for something that felt like it was IndieWeb and that was... Maybe a mistake on my part, because I do think that, you know, seeing how flexible the Drupal and Joomla communities are, why are we talking about PHP so much?
2: (laughs) (laughs) So I'm super curious now how you got from this whole world into the Jamstack world then, because you transitioned at some point from doing WordPress to doing Jamstack.
0: Okay. That's actually a good, that's a great point. So as I was building more and more sites for my clients, I started moving into the front end experiences we were making Once we got to WordPress, suddenly I wasn't building backends anymore. I never thought about backends because you just threw a WordPress site at it and it was done. And that was it. I had all this energy to spend on the front end of the site. So we were building these really elaborate and beautiful interactive sites for clients. And it was really, really fun. And so when we started seeing the shortcomings of that, we started to explore things like react or angular or, you know, whatever was out there around that time was when I had this really bad quarter life crisis. I was in my late twenties and I had been working like 90 hours a week for years. I also came from that unhealthy corner of hustle culture where it's like, if you're not overworked and underslept, you're not trying hard enough and, and all that stuff. So at a certain point I woke up, my partner at the time was like, Hey, you've got a bald spot on your chin. Like a chunk of my beard had just died. Over the next few months, it just got worse. And like, I spent two years not being able to grow a beard. When I realized that was happening, I was like, oh my God, I'm so stressed that I'm actually decomposing. That can't be my life. Like I'm in my twenties. I can't be physically falling apart in my twenties. So I kind of freaked out, decided I was gonna burn it all down. And I booked a trip to Alaska and I spent a week and a half in Alaska in a cabin with no cell service, no internet with some friends. We went out and like went crabbing every day And then we'd go out and pull up our crab pots and cook those and eat them and that was all i did i was just like okay and i thought about what do i really want my life to be like
2: did you read walden
0: no i didn't read Walden. (laughs) i like journaled the whole time i was just thinking i was like what am i worried about right now what am i afraid of what is the urge that i'm feeling at this particular moment and when i came back i decided like i needed to get out of that agency I sold the agency and moved to a consulting role that was on the opposite end of the spectrum. They were like, we don't care how many hours you work. We want you to do R and D here's the project that we want you to build. I was able to work on it really quickly. And I was like, do you want me to do more? And they were like, no, this is all we need you to do. So I was working like 10 hours a week that led me to the other side of this existential crisis was like, okay, I can't just make money and do nothing either. Like that also feels terrible. I started feeling very like empty and weird. Then I I took the job at IBM. And that was how I started moving to the Jamstack. I got to IBM. I was working 40 hours a week. I got to leave and be at home when I was done and not think about work or anything like that. But I was working on these big legacy front ends. And the way that they were set up, I worked on IBM Cloud. And IBM Cloud is a mass of multiple teams that have been built and acquired and mashed together into one service, as all the cloud providers are. So one of the projects that we were working on, we needed to make this certain dashboard that was really slow. It took like 40 seconds to load. And we wanted to make this dashboard performant. So the process that we took, we started looking at like, where is the slowdown? And so there was an API call. There was like four different front end frameworks being loaded. So you would hit like jQuery that loaded, I think it was Backbone that loaded something else. And then finally we loaded React in there and it was like, okay, so that feels bad. We probably shouldn't do that. And then we started kind of really looking into what it was. And it was like this node microservice that was really a copy of the monolith, like one of 30 copies of the monolith. And it had all of this legacy stuff in it. And the front end was mostly written as front end, but it was kind of built by the server. And there was this node proxy layer in the middle that was wrapping all these. It was a mess, like just code going every which way and and everything came from weird places. I wasn't using the JAMstack in the way that is described today because I didn't know that was a thing. But what we started doing was pulling the front end out. The way I used to describe it was that it floated over the rest of everything else, which it turns out is the way we describe it now. It's it's decoupled. Decoupling, yeah.
2: And is this around the GraphQL stuff you were doing or is this separate?
0: Yes, the, the GraphQL stuff was actually part of it.
2: Yeah. I'm curious about grams. We'll get into that in a second, though.
0: Yeah. So so as we were starting to float this, this UI layer over the top of the monolith, we needed a way to normalize data. Because what we were doing before is we were starting to do a whole bunch of work with proxies. So every backend service exposed an API, but they were REST APIs and they were thoroughly normalized. And that meant that if you were trying to load an account dashboard, you were going to load a user object and then get a list of IDs for, you know, transactions, and then you would have to make a one query per transaction ID to get that transaction object. And then you would have to make one query per additional list of IDs per transaction to get more details to fill out this thing. And that was why it was taking 40 plus seconds to load this page. We started looking at how does GraphQL fit into this scenario? GraphQL was the way that we were able to get away from writing node proxy layers in our front ends that were trying to build us bespoke endpoints, but it was creating all this weird confusion. Ramps was this idea. I was doing some study around how can we make APIs better. I saw what Facebook was doing with Relay and GraphQL. I started looking at how does that work in a microservices environment? Facebook has the monorepo or unirepo, however you want to describe it. All the code is in one place. So when you start implementing GraphQL, it's in one place and it has this thing. I had 30 plus teams at IBM that needed to be able to control their code independently and they super were not interested in getting into a monorepo. It was a non-starter, right?
2: You were building a mesh.
0: Yeah, I was like, how do I let these teams control their data but also centralize the data into one layer in a way that doesn't make anybody feel like they've lost control and that doesn't turn into another spaghetti proxy? GraphQL ended up being that solution. So what we did, we built a GraphQL harness and then that GraphQL harness could accept a bunch of resolvers and schema definitions, and it kind of smashed them all together. And this was before like schema stitching or federation or any of those things were popular.
2: Yeah. I've never heard the term graphical harness before. So like, what does that mean exactly?
0: In my mind, what I was thinking of it as was like a plugin system. So each service, each backend would define their own schema resolvers and any auxiliary stuff that they needed. And then they would put that out through a a node module. And that was an API, had an API surface that was uniform. So as long as their backend module for GraphQL adhered to the API contract for Gramps, then Gramps could stitch it all together and turn it into a single GraphQL API. And as part of that, I was providing a Redis layer for caching that they, it had good defaults, but they were able to control those if they wanted. It did query deduplication. It did you know, a lot of things that just get tricky with rest. You have to build it yourself in your front end or the rest team has to know how you're using it and give you special caching treatment and stuff.
2: Do you know if people still use Gramps?
0: They do. It's still live. Yeah, it's still in use at IBM. What I will say is that after I built Gramps, the Apollo team and other companies have built more sophisticated versions of what I did.
2: Well, what's funny is I work for one of those companies actually.
0: Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so that's kind of the thing, right? It's like, so I was experimenting and I went to the GraphQL summit and I taught this thing. And then later other companies built, I would say more like robust ways of solving this problem. Like I built it in a way that was, it was scalable, but it was very much like you do things exactly this way, which there's an argument for that. But I think that the way that, you know, like Apollo solved federation in a really nice way, Hasura has done this idea of kind of remote schemas in a really nice way. And there are companies all over the place that are doing really cool stuff. What's, what's your solution?
2: So StepZen, it's a it's a newer one, but it's a similar type of deal where it's doing connections between a lot of different APIs and it's translating from REST to GraphQL. And it's also, we're getting more to thinking of how we can kind of stitch the schemas and the components even together so we can start kind of creating more of a workflow around like the front end as well. Because right now it's just like this, like you say, it's like a, a managed GraphQL API gateway is kind of what it is. So you get all these questions, how you you know, expose your secrets and, and stuff like that, so it's a huge massive interesting space and just like hearing you talk about this, it kind of just blows my mind because like you were like way ahead of this.
0: The benefit and the curse of working in a big company is that you'll see these big problems coming before the open source community does because you're actively living through the problem. You see that now, like when you look at, at open source projects where they'll introduce internationalization and it works really well if you've got one site and then, you know, a big company comes in the Microsofts and the Oracles and the IBMs and they're like, hey, We have 10,000 web pages and they're managed by 40 different properties. And we need internationalization to be customized like this, or we can't ship it. And you're like, oh, I have no idea how we're going to make that work in our product. Being able to handle that really bespoke where enterprise and we made our company by balling up a bunch of other companies. And we have all the tech debt that comes with that. Solving those problems is really weird and hard. I had unique insight because of the ball of teams that was at IBM into a particular problem that was gonna come up for GraphQL users at the time that GraphQL was ramping up really hard. And I don't think I was the first person to tackle this. I think I was just the first person to talk about it in public.
2: Well, cause a lot of this is in this strange space between open source projects and actual like services that you would pay companies for. So like Apollo Federation, I've heard it referred to as both an open source thing and as a, a paid product. So like, I don't know, I haven't really looked into it, but it seems like they're all kind of on this periphery line of where do we make this line between open source and not open source? And does that line end here with these kind of API type tools?
0: The thing that's interesting is as open source companies are getting funded, it seems to me that the model has been build an open source thing and then build a cloud platform that supports the open source thing. When it's done well, I think it's great because it's an optional thing that adds enough value that you want it. When it's done poorly, it starts to feel like they're shipping two-thirds of a product and then you have to like pay to, it's like when you, you, know when you get a game on your phone and you get to play like one round and then it's like, oh yeah, you got to pay to unlock the rest of the game.
2: Freemium games.
0: I don't know. I feel like it feels like something that is an actual value add and not like the value. I'm excited. If it feels like I got tricked into getting half of an open source product and then I have to pay for the cloud for it to work, then I'm sad. But I do think, I think Apollo Federation is not that. I think they've done a good job of like, you can build and host and manage your own Federation if you want, or their cloud will do all of the configuration and setup and dashboards for you so that you don't have to deal with that yourself.
2: That seems great. Yeah, that seems totally reasonable. What I find interesting, I'm not gonna, I'm pretty sure I have a speculation of what cloud you were just talking about, but um, I am really curious. Like, I don't feel like Netlify led with a framework. They've had different frameworks that have circled around them, I feel like Netlify never really bought into a framework the way like Vercel bought into Next. Like it almost was Gatsby, but now it can't be because Gatsby has their own cloud, you know? So what do you think about that?
0: So something that has always been really near and dear to my heart is this idea that open source is and should be the rising tide that lifts all ships. We want to be the people who are putting things out there that make everyone around us better. That's part of what really attracted me to Netlify. Netlify is a platform and it's a paid service But it supports anything. You can deploy Gatsby or Next or Nuxt or Angular or your vanilla HTML site or whatever you want on Netlify and we don't care. We use the Jamstack architecture and that's what our platform is built to support. But we're working hard to make sure that open source patterns that are becoming popular are supported. That's why we've put so much into Netlify functions and the ability to do serverless compute so that you can build like full-fledged apps on the Jamstack. We're working on partnerships with other companies so that you can bring like, how can you make data work on the JAMstack? How can you make error reporting and and observability work on the JAMstack? We're not trying to be the company that sets up competition with anybody. We're trying to be the company that makes all the people around us better. Because to me, the heart of this is community. The heart of this is making people feel like they're better at their jobs. I'm not a big fan of this, this idea of kind of like drawing up the territories. I don't like this idea that if you are a developer, you have to choose a camp and then you have to use that tool forever or else you have to migrate to a new service. What I prefer is this idea of, like, I'm a developer and I can work on whatever I like now, and then in two years, two years ago it was Gatsby, this year it's next, and who knows what it'll be in two years from now. Maybe it'll be next. Like Maybe Vue finally takes over the ecosystem, right? I'm going to have to rebuild my app anyways. I don't want to also have to go churn all of my cloud providers and all of my, you know, all the accounts that I have because I have to move to like new hosting or something. And like, that's what attracted me to Netlify is this idea that I've got sites on it, Like I run, learn with Jason, right. And on learn with Jason, I build everything. People come in, they just teach me whatever they're excited about. And I love it.
2: I was there. I did one.
0: Exactly. Right. You came and we did Redwood and we deploy that to Netlify. Yeah, Like we're able to just like build and deploy whatever we want, wherever we want. It's such an exciting experience to be able to say, okay, I have a site. I have an idea. Now I can pick the best tool to build my idea. And then I can deploy it somewhere like Netlify that is not opinionated about what tools I'm using. It just gives me a good experience and lets me do whatever I want. That's why Netlify has never like gone all in on a framework or anything.
2: Yeah. The phrase I boil it down to is um, collaborators, not competitors.
0: Exactly. Like people love game theory, right? Do they?
2: I do. I don't know about people.
0: I feel like I hear people talk about it all the time. And there's this like very, this kind of active discussion about strategy and game theory. And there's a discussion of the competitive landscape being a zero sum game. And I completely refuse to believe that. I do not believe that web dev or open source is a zero sum game. It doesn't have to be winner take all. We are complementary services. Like if you use Netlify and you also use DigitalOcean or you also use something for your Kubernetes and you also use Apollo for your, your GraphQL layer or or whatever, like everybody's winning in this case, your job just got so much easier as the developer building a thing because you're able to say, Hey, I'm going to use Hasura to manage all of my data and events. And I'm going to use Netlify so that I don't have to think about like release engineering and deployment. And I'm going to use whatever open source tool, I'm going to use Redwood because it gives me all these opinions about how I can very quickly get something scaffolded up and running. How easy did my life just get and every single one of those services wins because none of them are actually competing they're all very complementary and i think that's the power of this jamstack model and it really gives me so much like hope and excitement about the community in general when i see that it does bum me out a little bit to see some attempts being made to kind of carve it up and say like no 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 come to our walled garden
2: Yeah, I think it's different marketing teams. (laughs) And when I'm boots on the ground and I talk to developers, every developer I've ever talked to who's used Netlify has raved about it. Like I've never met a single developer who used Netlify. I was like, ah, that was that was the worst. (laughs) Not only does it work for them, they say it's like the nicest thing they've ever used. And I can I can attest to that. You know, for what it does is by far the nicest tool like I've ever used. So yeah, it's it's amazing. And for what I was doing, it was free.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I think that's another important thing too. We you to be able to launch a commercial entity on Netlify and, and make some money. And like you, we want you to pay when you start making money. It's not like pay when you think you might make money someday. And, and like, if you read the terms for other clouds out there, you can't run commercial sites on the free plans. You have to like immediately start paying. And we want to be aligned with what people are doing, right? Like we need to make money as a business or else we don't continue to exist, but we don't want to make money at your direct expense. Like it should be the kind of thing where we're providing so much value to you that we're only taking a small portion of what you're already bringing in and aligning free tiers with that and making it so that we can be a platform that grows with you. Because, you know, we've got like everybody from indie developers who are trying to launch their first thing to Popeye's chicken, you know, Loblaws in Canada running like the largest retail chain in in Canada or uh, Victoria Beckham Beauty in the, in the UK, big companies with huge amounts of traffic and huge amounts of revenue are also running on Netlify. We'll grow to that scale with you and, and we'll charge accordingly when you're making millions of dollars in revenue. Yeah. You'll have an enterprise contract with us, but like when you're an indie, you don't have to pay us. Like go, go get your own bag before we come after it. Right.
1: <laughs> Something that I think is like always super interesting was a talk by sean c davies at the next js conf and he was saying that everything is a cms when you look at a situation a challenge you shouldn't just go with your biases you should always evaluate the current options and pick the best one and that's always stuck with me since i saw that i've very much always sat in a camp like gatsby forever and then next forever but now i always think about like I've got a problem, what is the best tool for that problem? And it changes the more you grow. Gatsby image-heavy Jamstack site was the key for ages. But then soon as Next.js brought out their image component, you reevaluate and say, maybe I could build this on Next.js now. It's this thing that I think is always really hard to think about. And I think this segues well into Learn With Jason, Because my biggest question with Learn With Jason is, do you want people to feel like their arse is on fire and they need to learn just what you taught them and take it into production in the next week?
2: No, not at all. Definitely not. Yeah. What I
1: mean by that is I watch a lot of conference talks and some talks are like, you're not using this. This is like the best thing ever. Here's a 15 minute presentation with just the highlights.
2: Because they're selling you something, dude. Because they're selling you a product. (laughs) I know. I know.
0: From my standpoint, you know, the whole goal of Learn With Jason is like, my absolute favorite place to be is in that feeling of optimism for the future. I feel like nothing makes me feel more optimistic for the future, at least in career-wise, than when I'm seeing somebody who is really excited connect a new set of dots for me people talk about the joy of learning. And I think that a secret weapon in my career, like a, one of the keys to my advancement is that at some point, and I don't know when this happened for me, but I learned, I spent a lot of time learning how to learn. And I, I have to thank my parents for that because I feel like they, they kind of just locked me in rooms and forced me to figure stuff out. And and at some point learning became fun. Like I enjoyed the act of trying to put a puzzle together and, and I do the I have just as much fun learning how to put together an Ikea shelf, as I do learning how to cook a different kind of meal, as I do learning how to build something on the internet. That joy of learning is for me easily the thing that has been most valuable because it means that when I walk into a room, I'm not just waiting until we talk about the thing that I'm interested in. It means that I'm interested in everything we're talking about and I want to learn more and I want to understand how it all fits together, especially when you're talking about career advancement. When you get to senior engineer, I'm referencing my my ladder at Netlify, right? When you get to senior engineer, you're still an individual contributor and your advancement is tied to your own individual abilities. But when you move beyond that, when you move up to staff, principal, you know, et cetera, you start getting measured on your impact on the people around you and your impact to the broader business. So if all you're interested in is the exact code, how much of an impact can you have outside of, I mean, you can do it on your team, but can you have a bigger impact when you're talking to product or sales? or the community? How can you get connections there? And so the goal of Learn With Jason is really just to try to share that joy of learning. Like what could we learn today and, and what would be fun? And, and that's why not all the episodes are about code. Like it's primarily about code. We've done over 200 episodes and I would say that 95% of them are about code, but I've also got episodes where I played Minecraft with Lindsay from my team. You know, I made music with a a producer out of Brooklyn and-
2: You talk about career stuff too. Like that's, that's a lot of good content you've started putting out.
0: Yeah. I had Sarah Drasner on and and we talked about like getting hired. We talked about, you know, how to, how to grow your, your network and your, your resume and all of that stuff is like things that are interesting. What I want to do is I, I want to create an environment where I, I feel like the best way to get people interested in something is to show them what it's like. I have a lot of fun and I hope that comes through in the show.
2: Well, I had a blast when I was on. (laughs) yeah right for me coming coming from the perspective of a teacher the fact that someone would create an entire show based around hey let me bring on people to teach things like you have no idea how big that is like what that means like how i never would have ever gotten that as a music teacher in a million years like to have been brought to a platform to teach and be watched by like a hundred people watch me teach like that's crazy
0: it didn't seem novel when i started doing it but i kind of realize now that it was it was something new at the time i was just like I don't know, I need to figure out how to make this stream interesting. Because the, the evolution I learned with Jason was like, you know, I started streaming meetings at Gatsby because I was just trying to create transparency for the company. That was one of my big goals when I was there was like, how do we make this community feel like it's actually a community and not just like a group of people who are potentially the customer?
2: That's what I'm doing today. Doing my first stream today, actually.
0: Oh, nice, 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 yes. But so I, I was streaming meetings and those weren't very interesting, nobody really cared. So then I streamed some like product work and that was a little more interesting and people kind of cared. And then I brought on somebody from the community and we worked on like a Gatsby problem and pair programming like that was interesting. People cared. So I was like, well, how could we do more pair programming? And, I, and then I realized that it's not super comfortable for most people to code in public. But I was like, well, I'm comfortable coding in public. What if they taught me and I did the coding? And that was how the idea was born.
2: That's the other hack. We're not coding at all when we're on the show. That's what flips the whole level of like the stress that comes along. Like obviously some people are going to be very stressed just to be out kind of speaking publicly in general, but it puts the burden on you to fix the bugs.
0: Right. Yeah. And it, it puts the burden, like I'm, I'm the beginner and, and sometimes I really am the beginner and I really don't know anything of what we're about to learn. But a lot of times I'm coming in with a pretty decent amount of knowledge of the topic because there's only so much JavaScript in the world, right? I've probably seen it before, but I still, I play the beginner. I ask the beginner questions. I, I try to remember like, okay, I, what, what were the questions I had when I started this and encourage the chat to do the same thing. Like I figure if I can ask the beginner questions, it makes it a safe space for somebody to ask their beginner questions.
2: That's what I liked about the Redwood one though. As far as I know, you actually didn't really know anything about Redwood like you'd heard about it, but you hadn't actually built anything with it.
0: No, I, I intentionally didn't learn it.
2: I thought getting that genuine response, like for me, it was great. Cause like all the moments that are supposed to hit, you were just like, whoa, that was awesome. <laughs> for us, we were just like nailed it on all fronts. It was very cool to get to introduce it to you, knowing how you know all the tech around it.
0: Yeah, and that's the fun, right? Is like, I think the other thing is when you take, when you take someone who is an expert in one area, and you move them outside of their area, you know. My my response could be to get defensive and because like I'm used to being smart, but like it's kinda of, I don't know, it's kind of fun to be a beginner again. And that to me is the kind of what I love about it. That's I think that's maybe that's the the joy of learning thing is like it's it's not fun to just know all the answers. It's really fun to be in a room where I'm like, man, I don't know anything. All right, there's so much to learn. Let's go. I've never had as much fun as I've had on that show. It's exactly in line with my sensibilities and my goals and and what's valuable to me it's building such a cool community there's so many people that i know because of that show who either have come on as guests or who show up every week in the comments in the chat there's this whole thing that's happening that i never would have found had i not just pushed that button and gone live
2: i mean this interview is a spin out of that because we met through learn with jason and that happened through brian douglas brian douglas was i'm doing the open source core contributors summit and you would hopped on a chat for a second and you're like oh cool redwood and I was like oh hey I wanted to get in contact with you about doing learn with Jason you're like yeah sure and then that was like I then I got on learn with Jason so it's just like these those little moments you know where people's paths crosses is, is super interesting and the thing you described about creating uh, an environment that allows you to continually learn from new people. That's um kind of why people podcast also <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. Cool do you have any other questions, Chris, before we start winding down here?
1: Of the technologies
2: that you've
1: taught or learned on Learn with Jason, what are your most favorite, your most memorable?
0: Probably the ones that I've gone back to the most. I use Hasura for all sorts of things now. It's become the thing that makes me really feel, you know, this podcast called Full Stack Jamstack. Like, that's the thing that makes me feel full stack is I can build a front end and then I go to the Hasura Cloud and set up a full running backend with GraphQL and webhooks and all this amazing stuff. And I never had to write any code or figure out how to deploy a container, or even really understand how the Postgres stuff works in the background. I just know if I go and click these buttons, then I'm going to get a backend and it gives me a huge amount of power. So that one is very, very exciting. I use Sanity a lot. We use Sanity to power a lot of, uh, of web properties. I think it's a really configurable, really flexible and I also just like that team. I really liked Espen and he's been on the show a couple times.
2: Other Brian, right? Who hosts That's My Jamstack. He's at Sandy also.
0: Yeah, yeah. He just joined up and like, they just hired uh, Kipehe and, and she's also amazing. That's a great tool, great team. And then the other one that I really did not expect to be blown away by was Applitools. Angie Jones came on and she taught me about Applitools. That is a visual regression testing tool. I know that I, I said that out loud and somebody was like, what, why is that interesting? But it's amazing because what it does is it's basically you add just a tiny bit of code and you're using Cypress, which is another amazing tool that's like so intuitive for something that you would think would be really hard. You add like just this tiny bit of code and then you will get a notice if something visually changed on your site and not in a really rudimentary, like one to one comparison.
2: To snapshots your front end, right? Is what kind of what it does.
0: It snapshots, but it's intelligent enough that you can say like, well, this is the news feed. This will always change. So don't fail builds for that, but fail builds. If my newsletter opt-in broke, because that should never change. And that's the number one thing on the site. So you can do these really fascinating things where you're, you're suddenly able to like confidently make changes to your front end and know that you didn't accidentally break the styles of a page you didn't look at by tweaking the styles somewhere else. Right. It's so simple. It's another one of those tools that I think takes something that we all know we should eventually do. Like, oh yeah, we should totally get testing in on this app, but who has time? Who, who knows how to make that work? Well, Apple tools is like, cool, we can do it. And you know, you can get it set up in an hour and then you're, you're good to go. That one has really stood out. Also like any opportunity to spend more than a few minutes with Angie Jones is like such a delight. She is one of my absolute favorite people on the internet. If you can watch any of her talks, or if you get a chance to interact with her, like she's, incredible very much after my own heart
2: yeah i follow her on all the social platforms haven't gotten a chance to to actually meet her yet but open invitation she wants to join the show anytime for sure the last kind of thing i would like to to talk about is that you are on a team of developer advocates which i think is still kind of a pretty rare thing i feel like it's more of a kind of solo role in a lot of companies and we've had natter and swix on who are on a developer advocate team at amplify so you are on that team with tara Ben, Cassidy, and Phil, right? And Kenny. So, wow, that's a big team. So, like, how do you guys think about, like... First off, metrics. Like, this is the first question I were always asked. I still have yet to hear a good reason. Like, what, are, what metrics do you look at? How do you even figure out if anything you're doing matters to the to the bottom line?
0: So there's a couple things that I'll say that are a little bit different about Nalify. The, the first is we very intentionally don't call it developer advocacy. We call it developer experience engineering. And there's a reason for that. I didn't talk about Lindsay because Lindsay's on our integrations team, but she's very much part of the developer experience team. That team, the integrations team, is actively building what we call the essential Next.js plugin so that those server things that Next is building, they work on Netlify now because of the work that the integrations team on the developer experience squad is doing. We are out there prototyping things. So in addition to like what would be traditionally called advocacy, blog posts, speaking, community outreach, those sorts of things, we're also doing engineering projects around What would make the experience of using our CLI better? What would make the experience of using our app better? What would make the experience of building an app on the Jamstack better? And we bring a lot of that back. So like integrations was born out of that question. What would make it easier to build these full stack Jamstack apps on Netlify? A bunch of questions and and conversations happened. And we looked at what was going on in the ecosystem. And, you know, next is the first thing we've tackled, but it's far from the last thing we're going to tackle. There's a a lot of really exciting stuff coming out that's going to make building Jamstack style apps that keep all the benefits. Like this is the other thing is I feel like people are getting excited about reintroducing servers into the mix, but I feel like everybody forgot that we got servers out of the mix because they're a nightmare. I feel like the response that we're hearing in a lot of cases is like, well, yeah, just set good cache control headers. If cache control headers were easy, we would have never stopped using them. The reason that we got to the Jamstack is because it's just not reasonable to expect the development team to be able to do that. There's a reason that joke is made, that caching is one of the two hard things in computer science. So we're thinking about all that, but then the, so you asked about metrics. When we're looking at metrics, we've got a few things. So the the first one is on the integration side, we're looking at like, are people using what we're building? Are we actually making a difference? Like if we build this essential Next.js stuff, does that bring in next sites? Are we seeing people use next on Netlify? So yes, we're seeing that number go up into the right and we're very happy about that. And then on the DX side for, like, outreach, we look at language. If we see a particular set of messaging, a good one that we've seen is the Jamstack is only static, right? And that's a thing that you'll hear. It's an objection that people make. And we know that that's not true, but the community didn't know that that wasn't true. So we started making a really concentrated effort to create content and demos and examples and work with partners to show You can build really complex, full-fledged apps. Just about anything you can imagine can use the Jamstack architecture. And the way we measure that, our metric for it is, are we the ones having to correct that misinterpretation of the Jamstack? If the community is jumping in and saying, oh no, you, you can build full stack apps, here's the, a resource, or here's a, here's a link. If other people are writing articles about it, like that's our metric. Now we've changed the conversation in a way that's measurable.
2: Or I mean, If people built entire frameworks around full stack, jam stack and podcasts, you could say.
0: <laughs> exactly. That's a metric for us is like, were we able to influence the conversation so that this misinformation that was out there is being dispelled, not by us yelling as loud as we can, but by like providing enough examples and, and helping be stewards of the community. You know, we didn't do it by ourselves, but we, we hope we added the resources and some of the the firepower that that allowed people to, to shift that mindset. We also look at things that, you know, we, we look at stuff that's pretty standard. How many people look at the blog? How many people are converting from, like, if, if somebody comes through our blog, how many of them actually become users? We look at key adoption metrics, like things that we want them to try in our platform. Are people actually trying that thing?
2: And then how do you think about your particular impact within your team in terms of, like, how you also measure that?
0: We each end up owning key initiatives. My job is also a little bit different because now that I'm at the principal level, the way that principals get deployed inside of Netlify is we're we're sort of dropped into something that needs extra attention. So I get moved around a lot. Right now I'm on our integrations team and I'm helping.
2: You're like the wolf in Pulp Fiction.
0: A little bit, yeah. Cassidy as well is a principal on the team and she's in kind of the same boat. So like she just went over to help out our engineering team on a, a project that was really high priority. And so she, she went and like embedded with them as an engineer on the team. And then I, I'm on the integrations team right now. But before that I was working on the explorers platform. So the educational platform that we just dropped at explorers.netlify.com. I helped with building that. We kind of worked on the architecture and stuff. Basically we set OKRs. What? I don't even know what that one stands for anymore.
2: Objective key.
0: Results. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We look at something that's like, this is an important thing last year it was like we need to get explorers out was one of our OKRs. Then my metric is did we deliver on that? And we don't deliver on it like is explorers.netlify.com live. We, We define outcomes. We want certain things to be true. A developer can find a resource about X. Someone is able to get from point A to point B in this topic. And those are the kind of OKRs that we measure against. So it's very Fluid. It's not the sort of thing that I think you could automate in a dashboard. It's very much like we sit down at regular intervals and we say, "What impact do we need to make, and what are the outcomes that show us that that impact was made?" And then we measure against that until we feel that we've made that impact, and then we reassess and make a new set of goals.
2: And that's why they pay us the big bucks. <laughs> it can't be automated i would love to get into that whole conversation about the terminology around it what we what we call ourselves as well but we unfortunately are are all out of time here and i really appreciate you you answering all those questions like you have been such a huge inspiration i know to myself and many others i know as a as a dev not a dev advocate but (laughs) as a developer experience engineer so but it's you know it's all kind of the, the same the same big bucket i think in a certain respect so yeah like just thank you for for doing what you do and being a force for good in the world
0: <laughs> thanks for having me I, I had a lot of fun today
2: results.